Welcome to episode 5 of the Local Meta. My name is Fletcher. And I'm John. Today we got a heck of a topic, so we're going to get right into it. We're going to be talking about sideboarding today. So this is this is a small topic, right, John? We're just going to kind of breeze over it really quick. Yeah, nice, you know, short 15-minute episode. It's not one of the most complicated things in all of, you know, deck building or anything. <laughs> yeah. I guess, I'm, uh, John, where do you want to start this one off? Ah, uh, this is going to be really weird. Um, it's not entirely just about sideboarding. It's also about sideboards in general. So, I don't, I don't really know how to start except just kind of jump straight into it. So, right, let's go. Let's let's dive on in. All right. So, obviously, people know what sideboards are, right? So, you know, it's well, the, hopefully yeah, we should. Yeah. So. Sideboards are extremely complicated in the fact that, like, a lot of people, when they're building their decks, they don't, like, for people who build their decks, they don't, like, necessarily think of the sideboard as being part of it, but they should. It is a very important part of it, because there's a saying, I don't remember who exactly said it, and this isn't a direct quote, but it's like, your, your 60 gets you through day one, your sideboard gets you to the top eight. And that's just a very relevant thing. Because, like, if you have a bad sideboard and you're playing with someone who has a good sideboard, unless they're just not giving a shit about your particular deck type, you're not going to fare very well because their deck will be increasing in quality while yours will be staying the same. That's just not good. Yeah, it, sideboards are kind of a weird thing. It's almost like a, a your brain just kind of clicks at one point and you, you start looking at your deck as 75 cards instead of 60 cards and then these 15 off to the side. Yeah, that was a that was a huge thing that we did when we were building your old uh, heroic deck. Actually, is we we figured out the main deck and we spent a good hour just going over possible like literal sideboard strategies of what we would cut, what we would bring in, and we made a pretty damn good fifteen actually. Yeah, that was a that was a really interesting time because we had the we had the main deck figured out really quick and. I think I think the sideboard plan was even just you know well you I was sitting at and writing stuff down and you were pacing around the table. Yeah, because I can't sit still. <laughs> the whole thing was is okay. We're, this is our matchup. What cards do we take out? Yeah, that's and I'm sure that's something that we'll cover eventually in the episode. But we figured out what cards we would take out and then built a sideboard plan based around that. Yeah, and like if you look if you read stuff online about stuff like that, that's what they tell you you should be doing, but it's so difficult to actually do. So I, I suppose just one little caveat. Um, nothing against net deckers. We've gone over this before. I'm perfectly fine with it. Uh, and obviously most net decks that you'd find, they come with a 15-card sideboard. Take those with a grain of salt. Yes, yes, very much so. Yeah, like um, the like the decks that you find... There, if you're going to like, if your goal is to find a 75 and build it, and then like go to like a GP or something, those sideboards are probably gonna be better for you because they were they were built with those kind of things in mind to a degree. But as to where like if you're playing locally, like you know you might have five cards in the sideboard dedicated to a matchup that no one plays locally, and those are just completely wasted as a result of that. As to you know if you. If you work on your sideboard to where you're taking into account what you're actually playing against personally, it's a lot more impactful for you. I mean, if you want to see that, like, obviously our meta is not huge there, but just look at our legacy deck sideboards. Yeah. There's some insane weird stuff in there that just doesn't make any sense outside of the context of our meta. Yeah, like chill. 
<laughs> yeah. Or warmth. You know? Hell yeah. yeah. Your warmth salt. Yeah. Okay. Um <laughs> <laughs> How do we how do we go about building a sideboard? Alright, so th this is like something that we we discussed, you know, where you just mentioned it a little bit ago, where it's like ideally every card in your sideboard should be justified just like your main deck. You don't just throw cards in your sideboard because they're good. Like you should have a specific goal in mind, which is where like you know, like when we built the heroic deck, you know, we had that plan where it's like, okay, so we took into account every single deck that was known in the meta, and we figured out what was bad against them and what we wanted to cut out for that, and then we started putting cards in the sideboard to replace that. And heroic was one of those extremely linear decks where you could only sideboard so much, so the cards that you boarded in had to be impactful enough to justify it. Yeah, uh, that's another thing that we'll probably get into. Like you know, like over sideboarding is something that a lot of people do. Where like it's it's if you're playing something like a mid range deck, you have the ability to cut almost any card you want and bring in new things in because your deck is already designed to do stuff like that. You're not synergistic. You're just sheer brute force power level. As to where you know, like an aggro or a control deck. Or, like, to a very much greater extent, combo decks, like, they have a very specific game plan in mind. And if they sideboard wrong, suddenly their main game plan is no longer a viable option. And suddenly they're sitting there with a bunch of their reactive, you know, sideboard cards in hand. And they, they can't win because they're not doing anything. And even though they're disrupting their opponent, it doesn't matter because their opponent has all the time in the world to do what they want. Yeah, that's a problem we found when we were building the sideboard for the unexpected results brew, is because that deck was so tuned to the main deck of trying to perform one specific task, and that was it, that removing any of those pieces was really hard. We had we had only a few flex slots in the deck. Yeah, it's super annoying with things like combo. Like I, I come across this a lot in Storm, where like I'll look at my sideboard, and I'll be like, well, I can see a justification for, you know, these abrupt K's and the Santhid Swarm and, you know, like, Chain of Vapor and stuff like that, and then I look at my main deck and I'm like, I don't know what to really cut. Because every cantrip I cut is making it, it making it harder for me to sculpt my deck, or my hand. Every ritual I cut is making it harder for me to get to that critical mass I need. Cutting tutors is painful. Like, there's just so much awkwardness with sideboarding that I do my best to never bring in more than, like, five like, I try to keep it down to three, if at all possible, and it's just so difficult to find that correct balance. Yeah, you can keep the sideboarding numbers down if you don't board in the lands to cast the spells, too, so that's good. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you would bring that up. Yeah, you knew I would. Okay. I mean, it, it is really difficult with the the combo decks and everything. Mid-range, you can kind of just slap stuff in and out as... As yeah. you said, um, it is extremely simple for a mid range to board stuff in and out because it's like they're literally just swapping their slightly less good cards for strictly better cards. Like, yeah. and to a degree, control kind of gets to do that also. Like, they can board out their super expensive stuff and board in their cheaper stuff, or they can board out their weak removal for more planeswalkers and threats. Like, control and mid range kind of have that easier than the much more linear focus decks. I mean, to, to some degree, those decks are designed around a sideboard even more so than a combo deck or a a really low-to-the-ground aggro deck that doesn't have a lot of options. Yeah, very much so. Like, if you look at, like, you know, modern Jund, 
you're not just looking at the 60 and saying, oh, this is sweet. You're looking at the whole 75, and you can see exactly what they want to be doing if the deck is built well. I mean, a lot of this stuff could just be pieces of a toolbox and everything like that, too. Yeah. Something like, back in the day, Birthing Pod. Yeah, Being able to swap pieces in and out as you need them. That's another very, very interesting aspect of building a sideboard, is something like uh, Wishboards do this a lot, if you're playing in old enough formats where... Um, when I was playing the Epic Storm for the longest time, I my sideboard was full of sorceries because I could tutor them up with Burning Wish, and that like so that was I think eight of the cards in my in my sideboard were specifically dedicated for stuff like that because you know those gave me that toolbox box aspect. Or when I played elves, my entire elvish sideboard outside of four cards are creatures because you can grab them with um. Uh... Court of Calling. Court of Calling. Yeah, like, at any time I can tutor up the exact card I need for the exact situation. And that's something that a lot of people need to, to take into account if they're playing, you know, certain types of decks where, like, you can take advantage of your main deck building to make your sideboard even more powerful. So, you know, like, yeah, I had a single Kataki Wars Wedge in my sideboard, and I had a single Spellskite in my sideboard, and a single um, Phyrexian Revoker. But I'm playing four Court of Callings and four Collected Companies. It's not that hard to find those cards if I really need to. Yeah, and it just gives you the flexibility. Now you don't have to run, you know, two to four spell skites or whatever in your sideboard because you have to hit that exact card. You can just run the one, and you basically run copies of it. Yeah, and it was a perfect example of that. Is like you know I have a one of all these different creatures, but I had four chokes in my sideboard, or sorry, three chokes in my sideboard because I couldn't tutor them up. But they're an important enough piece. Yeah, I needed a way to actually get them consistently. So that's there's a lot of work that goes into actually building a good sideboard, and that's one of the... like Just taking into account what you're trying to do with your deck is one of those things. So when, when you're building a sideboard for your meta, what things do you have in mind? What How are, what, how are you choosing those cards in particular? There's a lot of weird ways to go about... like building the sideboard like i'm going to use modern as an example where modern has a lot of very linear very specific strategic cards or strategic decks rather and those decks like they tend to be highly resilient to what would be considered normal disruption to where you kind of need something that can just hammer it down and lock them out like affinity is a prime example it's really hard to beat Affinity if all you're doing is casting Lightning Bolts. It's it's doable, don't get me wrong. I've done it before. But sometimes you just need something that will just take it over the edge, like a Stony Silence or a Hercules Recall if you're playing a more tempo-ish deck where you just need that one turn where you can buy yourself to finally get in Lethal. Or, you know, Fog if you're playing the Affinity Mirror. <laughs> sometimes you just need one turn. That's all you gotta do. And, like... These are commonly referred to as uh, like you know silver bullets, as it were. Where like if you play them, you're probably gonna win the game on the spot if you're doing anything close to putting pressure on them. Like if you slam turn two Stony Silence or Kataki Wars Wage against your affinity opponent, they're gonna have a tough time. You know, if you slam a uh, turn one Grafdigger's Cage against Dredge, they're not gonna be enjoying their life very well, especially now that they can't quotations play fair by casting 12-12 Grape Trolls. <laughs> yeah, that sounds fair. Yeah, perfectly fine. So these so these Silver Bullet cards are just the cards that 
they destroy your oppose the opposing deck, but they ha- are very narrow. Yeah, they're they're extremely narrow, and they're focused on exact one exact thing, like Kataki's Wars Wage and Stony Silence and cards like them. They have play for things outside of Affinity, like they're also good against Lantern Control, but they are dead against Dredge. They are dead against Jun. They're dead against any of the myriad of control decks you have available, unless one of the control decks happens to be. Um, Doctor Sword, but that's barely a deck, so depending on your meta. <laughs> depending on your meta. <laughs> yeah, so like the silver bullet cards, it's like, you know, it's it's exactly what the reference is referring to. Silver bullets are really good against werewolves, but they're really bad against the random bear who's mauling your face. They're the same <laughs> as they're the same as any other bullet, except worse, because they're made out of silver instead of lead. I'm guessing with these silver bullet cards, you you don't want to put too many of them in your sideboard to some degree. Because I'm guessing, so, it's easy for me to sit down and look at my 15-card sideboard for, or to look at the modern format I'm going to be playing against. It's like, well, I'm going to be playing against Affinity, so I want, you know, three, four Katakis. You know, I'm going to be playing, oh, I'm also going to be playing against Dredge. I want three, four Graftigger's Cage. Oh, I'm playing against, insert deck here. I'm playing against Burn. I want four Leylands of Sanctity. Yeah, and that that 15 cards seems like it fills up really fast. So how do you pare this down to to determine these, you know, how many and which of these cards you want? It's always a super awkward balance to find because like especially against the linear decks, no one likes losing to them. They always feel like they didn't necessarily deserve to, but you know, deserving is overrated. Um the best way to like I, the way I like to do stuff like that is, like, try and diversify your sideboarding if you can against decks that you don't need to have the specific stuff. Like like I said, like, Kataki and Sony Science are really good against um, Affinity, but if you're playing a deck that can, you know, play some early removal, something like Damnation or Anger of the Gods is going to also just be backbreaking for them. And that's also, like, those are also very good against anyone playing small creatures. You, know, you have your random elves opponent, or you're playing against someone who's on zoo, and if you can, like, board wipes are useful in those regards and stuff like that. Like, every single card in your sideboard matters so much in modern that if you have a wasted sideboard slot, you will get punished so badly for it. So instead of using silver bullets, sometimes it's worth using those the Swiss Army knife cards if you have a little bit of game. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of them for. Like, any deck I'm playing, like, if I'm playing a more linear deck myself, like, if I'm playing Elves, I'm going to play the Silver Bullet stuff. But if I'm playing, like, my Blue-Black Control list, I don't really have many cards that are specifically dedicated to one thing, except for I have a few Sun Droplets for the Burn matchup, because I just don't think Burn's a good matchup. But, you know, like, I have Damnations in my sideboard. I have Engineered Explosives, which have multiple uses on my sideboard. I have Negates, which have multiple uses. I have Dispels, which have multiple uses. Like, those are all cards that I can perfectly justify bringing in against, you know, like, a burn deck. I'm going to bring in my Counter Squalls and my Dispels, because they're just good in that matchup. But, you know, I'm also going to bring in a bunch of, you know... I'm going to bring those same things in against a Control Mirror I face, or a, you know, instant sorcery-based combo deck I'm playing against. Like, just having every one of those cards in my sideboard have multiple uses is just highly beneficial for me. Yeah, I like... I like um, uh, having sort of the combinations of the cards, too. Like, when I was playing uh, Blue Moon, I had uh, a couple Hercules Reek. I think 
two or three Herkos Recall in the sideboard that I needed for Affinity just to slow the deck down so that I could get, get into a place where I could defend against it. But also my favorite sideboard card in, for that deck was, is it Static Caster? Mm-hmm. That tech card was great, or was pretty good against Affinity, and I always boarded it in there, but it was great against so many other decks also. Yeah, like any deck who's playing small creatures, like that card's just useful against. And like, sure, you could have played more Hercules Recall, you could have splashed white for a Stony Silence and all that, but suddenly, you know, like those the cards are dead against anyone else, and you just don't want to be in that situation when you're playing a controllish style deck. And now I have a card that you know, even in a worst case scenario, if I pull some bad cards out of my deck that just don't do anything, I can go, well, I got a blocker at least sometimes. Yeah. And I've never really had to do that, luckily. But, you know, it's, it's good against the token decks. It's good against, you know, Infinity. It, it, it does work in a lot of places. Yeah, like having having a diverse sideboard is very good unless you are, unless it's a deck that you just cannot beat naturally. And then you just have to put in the put in the time for it, basically. Yeah, like then, like you get to this point sometimes where it's like if you just absolutely cannot beat a deck, you need to decide: are you going to dedicate a bunch of sideboard slots of absolute haymakers that just lock them out of playing Magic? Like you know, like say if you like if you just cannot beat Dredge, do you want to decide to play four sideboarded? Leyline of the Voids or Rest in Pieces. Like, I'm just going to make us a dredge cannot, can just not beat me. Or do you just kind of cut your losses and say, well, I can't beat it. It's not that big part of the meta. I'm just going to hope I don't have those pairings. And if I do, I'm going to hope I can steal a win. Yeah, with like, and the example I can think of with that is um, uh, Blue Moon again. Um, we, we dedicated a lot of cards to, uh, you know, Affinity and some of the combo decks and you know all these pieces but the one matchup i don't think i could ever beat without extreme amounts of luck was boggles yeah that's that that is an unwinnable matchup for almost any control deck i just can't do it and we just kind of accepted that you know if i run into it i'll just try my best with the cards i have in my board but it's just going to be one of those matchups that i'm going to have trouble with but it wasn't but it was didn't show up enough to dedicate a large number of cards in my sideboard to Absolutely, and like I mean, there's also the point where like if it is super popular, why are you playing a control deck? <laughs> uh, that I mean, that's part of the decision too. Sometimes you know, it's like, well, I have this deck, but I have to do a, an entire 15 card sideboard for this one type, this one matchup, and it's you know, most people are playing it. Well, maybe you'd need to rethink that. Like a very good example, actually, of that is it's it's. It's a sort of well-known fact that Merfolk just has a bad matchup against Affinity. Because Merfolk takes, you know, one or two turns to kind of get the ball rolling, r- rolling, and it's so hard for them to interact with Affinity. Like, the matchup has gotten better with stuff like Harbinger of the Tides and things like that, but it's still just up, not a good matchup. And a guy recently did really well with Merfolk. I don't remember. I think he got, like, top forward or something. He had no Hercules recalls at all in his deck. Like he just he's like, I'm not even gonna try it. I'm just gonna try and do what I can to, you know, win with what I have available to me, but it's not worth wasting sideboard slots on a matchup that even with Hercules recall is still very difficult. Like I have cast three Hercules recalls against the Affinity player before and still lost. Part of that could be because, you know, I had three Hercules recalls instead of, you know, an actual creature to kill them. Yeah, that is that's a huge piece too. I mean, you're you know, when you're putting those cards in your deck, you have to think about how do multiples affect 
me when I'm playing the game. Because, yeah, if you have two Hercules recalls in your hand and, you know, all you need is a creature, I mean, you just wasted a card on that. It's like with unexpected results, we had to make, with the sideboard there, we made the decision, okay, we're going to play four Leylands of Sanctity in the sideboard because burn is just a matchup we can't deal with and we just need to buy time. And it's also a fine card. Like if you're just yep. trying to buy time, it's still a fine card to hit. And it's a, yeah, it's a fine card to hit. And so, the, but the way that deck kind of churns through cards and everything and, and how it handles everything, that's not a huge drawback. But there's a lot of decks where if you, were, if you, you know, ha- drew an extra Leyline of Sanctity sometime in that match, that could be a huge detriment to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're with with unexpected results. You're already drawing fifteen mana, fifteen fifteens. Like drawing a drawing a random four mana enchantment isn't that bad. I've I've had six six card hands with four with three lands in the hand and still had an average converted mana cost of like twelve. <laughs> yeah, you can you can do some really interesting things with that deck, like Mulligan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't mulligan well, but <laughs> it doesn't do a lot of things well. And that's that's another one of those things. Like a lot of people always like you know they ask me stuff like this. Like you know like they're they're doing their sideboard swap and you look at you look what they're doing. They're pulling in like you know fifty or like eight cards, and they're not even necessarily like upgrades. They're just bringing in because they think they're good. And as a result, you know, they're boarding out a lot of their stuff that actually can do stuff. It's like, you know, you yeah, you can board in Transgress the Mind against a control deck, but when you're top decking trying to find a threat, and you try and top deck a Transgress the Mind, and, you know, you cast it on them, and they're also, like, you know, they're kind of, like, doing their own little, you know, you've, you guys have traded resources and they don't have much, like, Transgress the Mind is not a good card anymore. You just want a threat at that point. You know, oversideboarding is a huge thing that people do wrong all the time. Where it's like, I'm trying to, like, you know, train myself to, you know, like, I don't want to board in that many cards. Like, I'll, so, you know, I will look through my deck and I'll be like, what is bad in this matchup? And I'll cut that and then I'll find something to bring in. It's just, that's, it's not something that's easy to do. I do it wrong commonly. Like, you know, I'll do that where I'll grab my sideboard and I'll, these are the eight cards that I think are worth bringing in. Then I look through my deck, and then you know, like I find this little balance where it's like, okay, well, these are what I don't want. Then I re-go through those eight cards, and I'm like, well, these are the best of those options. Like your goal isn't to board in enough cards to just crush your opponent and win on the spot. Your goal is to just make your deck better in general against them. You want to cut the bad cards and put in the good cards. And that's yeah, that's something that I've feel like i've run into is like i feel like when i first started kind of playing with sideboards it was like i undersideboarded and i was like oh i'll put these you know i, I i'll use blue moon for an exa- uh, example just because i know the deck i'd um, uh, be playing against affinity be like oh i'll board in the two hercules recalls and that's all i would board mm-hmm. and then eventually i got further and further along and I started over sideboarding i'd be like well we'll board in the hercules recalls and the you know, the is ecstatic casters and a bunch of, and some other cards that just don't really, they're, they work, but they don't really. And I'd board out cards that are just would be better without thinking because it feels like, Oh, I have to put these cards in because that's what I'm supposed to do. And finally, I feel like I've kind of come to a, a middle ground and I tend to do the same thing you do, where I'll go through my sideboard and pick out like, 
half of it, as you said, you know, seven, eight cards, and I'll, and I'll set them down. And then I'll start going through my main deck and pulling out the cards that I think are actively bad. Mm -hmm. And if I... Hope, Hopefully, I usually pull out less cards than I picked out from my sideboard. Because <laughs> if I pulled out more, that's a bad thing. Yeah, it's, um, it's always really awkward when you have to do things like that. Yeah. You know, but, like so, the Boggles matchup. Yeah, exactly. So I'll pull cards out and then kind of pick the best cards out of the sideboard and swap them out. And then I'll go through and make another pass on each side again um, really quick. I kind of know what I'm going to sideboard anyways, so this you know this isn't taking like 10 minutes of my match. Yeah. Um, but I'll take a quick look just to make sure um, that I don't actually want any of these cards. And I'll go back and forth and kind of swap things and then and then finalize it and go for it. But, yeah, yeah I mean, it's so easy to just grab those eight cards and be like, these are the ones I want. And and just not look back and just, and just feel like you have to pull cards out of your main deck for it then. Yeah, you just go on this huge thing where you're like, I must make room for these cards because they're really good. And it's like... Yeah, but you're cutting a torrential gear hulk, and that's kind of how you win the game. <laughs> yeah, it's just I don't know. I, I I like doing the thing a lot of times too, where I'll cut like three of one card or something like that. Like if I have a four of, I'll cut three of them mm -hmm. and leave one in. Blue Moon, I do that a lot, where I where it was a deck that um, Moon would be okay against, like if they. I'd kind of keep it in there to keep them honest, basically. Yeah. And so I'd cut, like, three of the moons or something like that. Um, Legacy Burn um, against decks that played, didn't play, or once they saw the price of progress and they'd start playing around it, I'd cut, like, three of them and keep one in just to keep them honest, basically, if they started going crazy. Yeah, that was something that I commonly did in Twin. A lot of people, like, you know, I was told I was wrong on multiple occasions because I would never board out the full Twin combo. I would always leave in one Splinter Twin, and two creatures to put it on. Because, you know, like like you said, it keeps your opponents honest. Like, you know, it's a commonly known thing that, you know, people board out the twin combo if you're playing if you're playing against them and you're playing a deck with removal, and, like, you know, suddenly they might not be playing around, you know, having the twin combo because they're expecting that. And sometimes you just get them because they got greedy. They're like, oh, he boarded in Karanoses and, you know, Jaces, and he's going to do this thing. And then you're like, nope. Turn three, deceive Rexark. Turn four, twin. You're dead, <laughs> and they don't see it coming. And it's like thanks for tapping out. Uh, otherwise, sometimes what I've done is I'm uh, like I'll lose game one or something, and then board out all of my the important piece or whatever it is, mm -hmm. like all four of my moons or something like that, or all four of price of priority, whatever the card happens to be, and then. Um, because because I just kind of know it's better without it sometimes, and then I'll win that game, and then I'll board like one or two back in and for game three. Yeah, because you know if they don't see them, they might not be playing around them anymore, and they get a little complacent. Because I feel like I I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but I feel like people don't board game three very much. Almost never. Like you'll see pros do it and stuff, because like there are things that are better on the play versus on the draw, but it's so uncommon. <laughs> Sorry for people to actually do that especially if you're playing on like you know the local level like they're not going to reevaluate their sideboard based on what they're doing and you know they're just gonna keep you know going about how they were and you know if they they'll get you know they'll get complacent and be like oh well you know i didn't see a price to progress he probably doesn't have one you know so i'm just gonna start fetching all my lands because he's not gonna be expecting me to have it yada 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 
Like, and then you windmill it. Yeah, different skill levels of peop- of players will, like, you know, vary on how often they do this. Like, you know, we have a guy who plays Legacy who will almost always fetch basics if he can. It's, just, <laughs> it's in his blood to do that. Even if he's not playing its burn, he'll do it because he understands the importance of a mana base. Yeah. He doesn't want to get wastelanded out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, like when I'm playing my blue-black control list, I will almost always fetch basics if I can because... I don't want to take more damage than I need to, and I don't want to randomly get wrecked by, you know, the person who randomly decided to bring in Blood Moon against the blue-black deck. (laughs) I specifically built my mana base in such a way that I will not lose to Blood Moon, and the number of people who still boarded in against me is mind-blowing. Like, when I'm actively showing them that I can fetch for basics, and then I see them have a Blood Moon, it's like, what are you doing? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I would do. I tend to play a deck that main decks Blood Moon, so... Yeah, but that's slightly different. Like, like this is people who, like... It's a it's something that I like to call, like, free win cards, and I think people play them too often. Like, Worship is a prime example of this. Where it's like, I've, I've had someone board in Worship against my blue-black control list, because he said it might be relevant. And I just looked at him like, I'm playing a control deck. If I'm... I'm never going to race you, which is where worship is at its best. If I'm winning and you have no creatures in play, you're just dead. And it's like it's the same for people who like, you know, they'll bring in that one of Blood Moon to try and get me when I'm playing control deck. It's like, yeah, except I know you're playing red and I'm going to be playing around it, and now you have a completely dead card in your deck. Mm-hmm. And like there's just so many people who board in like those free win cards, and it's like becoming like an epidemic in our modern meta where we play it's like guys i understand that worship is a big splashy card and you feel super awesome when you get someone with it but you're not learning from it and you're boarding it in in the worst possible situations yeah you really kind of have to assess what's going on yeah don't get me wrong worship is a fine magic card in certain situations like it saw its huge resurgence because it was unbeatable in the eldrazi mirror but like, as a result of that, you know, like, there's these people who just, like, if they're playing a white deck, oh, they're gonna have worship, and they're gonna play worship, and they're gonna try and get their free wins from it. It's like, you're, sure, you board in worship against my storm deck, and I'm getting out Platinum Empyreans, and you can't beat me, and I'm going to deck you because you've cast things to search your library, and I haven't. <laughs> It's like, I will sit here while you cannot kill my 8-8s, even though I can't attack you, and you will deck yourself. I'm fine with this. It's like, I've, I've won games because of that, poor, because people are just obsessed with bringing in cards that they shouldn't. When it's like, it's like, man, you know, it's really unfortunate you decided to board out your removal spells to deal with these creatures, even though I'm playing a deck that still runs creatures. You know, I'm playing Storm. Goblin Electromancer, Electromancer is still a good creature. That's worth killing because it allows me to go off without a Pyromancer's Ascension. But oh, that deck's dead now. So, GG Taxian Probe, GG. <laughs> that was a tear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you? I, but do you think there is any value to these free win cards, or is it just like you just need to know when to play them? Absolutely. Like, they're absolutely worth running. Like you said, like, Blue Moon is a deck built around playing Blue Moon because sometimes you just win the game on turn three because your opponent yeah. can't deal with you. Like, like there are situations, like, like you know, 
there are situations where, like, yeah, your opponent cannot deal with a warship. If I was playing normal Storm and I hadn't brought in, you know, my sideboard strategy, I would never be able to beat a warship. But, like, that's it. That's you assuming that I'm not changing my deck around. Like, uh, if you, it's a very common thing for people to board in Blood Moons against Jund, but Jund expects that from people. So, you know, they'll, they'll, will do their whole thing where they're like fetching, you know, their basics so they can play around it. And sometimes you can just get them and like, it's worth doing that. And it's especially worth doing that if the matchup is just bad for you. Like, it's the same thing as like, you know, having like the super powerful silver bullets. Like, for all intents and purposes, the free win cards are silver bullets to a degree. If you have a bad control matchup, board and chokes against them. It's really hard for like, you know, any of the control colors to deal with a choke. Like, unless they're randomly on Esper. You know, Blue Moon isn't going to be able to deal with the choke. You're just cold to that. Nope. That's, yeah, uh, yeah, I basically can't just, I just can't beat that card. Yeah, Grixis can't beat it. It's like, you literally need white or green, and Esper isn't really a thing, and I've never seen a green-based control deck, so. So, I I feel like Jund is a deck, though, that you'd want to keep that one moon, like, for me, playing moon, I'd want to keep that one moon in just to keep them honest. Yeah, that's the, I would do the exact same thing, like, you know, I would I like I would board in a blood moon against Jun because sometimes you just get them with it and it's like you know yeah if they're playing around it that's fine but you boarded in one so they're slowing their own game plan down by not fetching non basics and maybe since they don't see one they might not be playing around it for game three and you know mm-hmm. like the value of having that one random card that just hoses them is really powerful just boarded in in the right situations is my thing like I see people do it way too often. Another card I have with that is Lost Legacy. In standard, is so many people would board in Lost Legacy against every deck because it's just like, well, now I can name this card and you know they won't have it anymore. It's like, sure, you named Lost Legacy on turn twelve against your control opponent and named their counter spell, and they countered it anyways. So are you like you're gonna name the counter spell? It's like. It's so low impact against so many things. Like, I had one Lost Legacy in my sideboard when I played Blue-Black Control, and I would board it in against Green-Black just to name Ishkana. Because she was so annoying to deal with that I lost more games with her than anything, to the point of it was worth bringing in, in a one-of that I could, you know, filter through my library to find if I need to, just to deal with that one card. It wasn't to hit Ember Cool. It wasn't to hit any of the Planeswalkers. It was just for Ishkana because that was the card that was the most problematic for me. Um, that's that's just like that's just something that so many people they board it in against everyone. It's like I'm gonna name this, and it's like all right, your opponent reveals their hand. They didn't have one anyways, and you have no guarantee they're even gonna draw it. And a lot of time, people would like they'd cast Log Lost Legacy against me. They'd go through my deck and they'd realize that I'd boarded some of those cards out. Because like I com- <laughs> I love it. <laughs> like I commonly trim on four ofs just to make room in my main if I need to, and so you know they're going through them. They're like, oh, this thing isn't even in there. I'm like, yeah, because I wanted to make room for this impactful sideboard card that I'm going to cast against you. <laughs> so many people just obsessed with their trying to get free wins, and it's absurd. It's not even a free win at that point either. Like, it is card disadvantage to cast things like Lost Legacy, because even if they have the card in their hand, they're drawing a new card to replace it. So, do you have any, any final thoughts on, on sideboarding for now? If you're not sure about sideboarding, this is something that I think everyone should do, is once the game's over, lay out the cards you brought in, lay out the cards you brought out, 
look at your opponent. I mean, obviously, if your opponent's really salty because you, like, you know, crushed him or something. Or, if or have a friend like you that I can ask. Yeah, like, like, look at someone and be like, what do you think of how I did in this situation? Like, did you think I cut the right cards? think I brought in the right cards? Like, I do that constantly with everyone. Because my goal is just sideboard better against them. Like, yeah, you're going to have those some people who are there like, like, well, what does it matter how you sideboarded you won? Or... You know, oh man, you just wanted to bring that up, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, or, or I don't, I don't care how you sideboarded, you know, because I'm not going to help you like beat me later. But like, those are the kind of people you don't want to deal with, anyways. And it just gives you a good metric of, all right, I'm going to stay away from you because you're a jerk. Yeah, and and that's the thing too is, is like, even if you won the game, I think it's worth laying the sideboard out and saying, yeah. did I do this right? Like, even and though that's you... I got I got criticism for doing that that one time, yeah. like, and asking you about it. Because I think what they somebody said was, um, you won the game. Why does it matter? Yeah, you can always do something better. That's how yeah, magic just because, is. Just because you won the game does not does not mean you did everything right. Until they decide to clone the weird love child of John Finkel and Owen Turtenwald, there will never be someone who plays magic perfectly. <laughs> so. Taking like just do something like that. Like just discuss things like that with people. That's how you get better at sideboarding. That's how you just get better in general. Is the social aspect of magic. So take advantage of it. It's good for everyone. Mm-hmm. So ah, any any final thoughts? You said that I couldn't condense this all into one episode. Yeah, I'm sorry. Forget for that. Not I, believing in forget you. that I hate essays, and I will condense everything if I need to. We'll probably. <laughs> this this was this is still a big topic. We'll probably hit sideboarding again in the future. Yeah, it's this, cover more stuff. This is a very commonly asked like this was the most commonly asked episode for from people I know to actually have us make. So, you know, worth value. So, any anything else or So, good? I have a oh. somewhat weird question. What is your opinion on cottage cheese? On cottage cheese? Yeah. I'm a big fan. Alright. You're a reasonable human being. I approve of you. I mean, I can understand why people don't like it. I mean, it's basically curdled milk, right? It kind of, I don't know. Delicious curdled milk. I'm not a cottage cheeseologist. <laughs> Alright. Okay. Random thought. So, <laughs> so on that note, we'll, we'll wrap this one up. Um, just a, a quick reminder that I mean, you're listening to this already, but you can pick us up on Google Play, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Just search for the local meta on any of those platforms, and you should find us. Um, and if you have any feedback on this episode, or and or you know have any more questions you want to talk about, want us to talk about with sideboarding, if we hit this topic again, you can email us at thelocalmeta at gmail dot com. Yeah, share share us with your friends. The more people who listen to this, the better it is for our egos because it makes us feel like someone actually loves us yeah let people know that we're <laughs> that we're doing this and um uh let us know what we can be doing better so uh i guess that's all for now and we will catch you next time see ya